1580 as we continue all three hours of today's program to celebrate the music of Quincy Jones. Quincy celebrating his 90th birthday this week, uh, and we uh, love and adore Q. And all three hours today, we've been playing uh, some of the best of uh, Q. There's a whole lot to choose from. You can't you can't do justice to his corpus, to his body of work. We closed last hour with uh, Quincy and Barbara Streisand. We've played Quincy and and Frank Sinatra, Quincy and Michael Jackson, Quincy and Patty Austin and James Ingram and Quincy and Brothers Johnson and Chaka Khan. The list goes on and on and on of all the greats uh, that Quincy has produced for, all the soundtracks he's uh, overseen, all the compositions he's written for film and for television and the like. Uh, He is uh, a renaissance man. He's the ultimate uh, in renaissance. And there's pretty much nothing that Quincy has not done in the world of music, including this hit, We Are the World, which raised tons and tons of money for hunger programs in this country and indeed around the world so we continue our celebration of the uh, life and legacy of one quincy delight jones now 90 years young uh q we love you uh in this hour a conversation with acclaimed essayist critic and public intellectual william derezowitz about the delicate balance between free speech and censorship a balance it seems to me uh that's getting uh i might have put it it's on a tightrope it's on a tightrope getting uh, more and more delicate by the day. We'll talk about that and the impact of uh, social media on public discourse. We'll talk about the importance of intellectual diversity in a democratic society and a great deal more now that we are pleased to be joined by William Derezowitz on this program. Uh, Bill, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm delighted to have you with us. Uh, glad we've got an hour, a lot to talk about, and uh, let's jump right in. Um, let me just ask whether or not I, I, I sense that I'm right about this, but I want to take your temperature uh, uh, on how you read um, this tightrope that we are on in this country um, between free speech and censorship. Why don't you just take some time? we got an hour. Frame for me where you think we are right now in this, uh, in this rub, as it were. Yeah, um... I'm not even sure I would call it a tightrope, because I'm a very big believer in free speech and free expression for Mm -hmm. reasons that I'm sure we can get into. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's a place for censorship, whether it's official censorship on the part of government, which we're seeing a lot from the right now, especially at the state level, or... So there's the less formal social censorship that we often see on the left in institutions, on social media, and so forth. Um, yeah. If, if, if not a tightrope, give me a different and better metaphor. I, I, I take your point, but give, give me a different and better metaphor. Hmm. That might be hard to uh, come up with, but... Um what 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 what, what I'm getting? I got a slippery slope. I like that. Slope. I'll take that slippery you know? slope. I'll take that. Uh, I'm just trying to get yeah. a sense of I'm trying to get a sense of where you think we are in real time. So I said tightrope. You say slippery slope. It's your it's your conversation. You're the expert. I'll I'll accept slippery slope. Now unpack for me the ways in which you think we are on a slippery slope vis a vis this balance between free speech and censorship. Yeah. Well, for one thing, I think that. We are losing, in many areas of our society, the very sense that free expression is essential to democracy, to individual dignity, to social progress. I mean, I think more about the left. I consider myself a person of the left. I'm sort of a Bernie Sanders-type economic progressive. Mm -hmm. I think the right has completely lost its mind. (laughs) I 
feel like there are other people who can talk about the right more effectively and it doesn't do much good for people to me to talk about it. So I think about the left and what's happening on the left. And one of the things that's, that's very obviously happening, I mean, it's, I mean, people are very upfront about this, is this idea that free expression is actually a tool of the powerful. It is repressive. It is a tool of sort of all the hierarchies of race and gender and ableism and tied up with capitalism and all the supposed evils or actual evils uh, that were that were that were meant to fight against. Uh, totally lost is the sense that free speech, historically and just logically, is actually the tool of the power left. Mm. Right. I mean, this was true of the civil rights movement. This was true of the abolition movement. This was true of any any movement or any individual who stood up against the powerful. Okay, the the powerful don't need the First Amendment. Vladimir Putin doesn't need anyone to guarantee his free speech rights. Uh, The people that he's been censoring, jailing, driving out of the country, they could use something like the First Amendment. And to me, it's a sign that, I mean, in in the 60s, the left was very much on the side of free speech. You know, one of the one of the early sort of uh, moments of the rights movements of the 60s was the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, which was about the right of college students to engage in political uh, speech and activity on public university campuses. Um, Why has there been this change on the left? Well, I think it's a sign that the left has gained a tremendous amount of power. Uh, I mean, we can look at places like Texas and Florida and say, well, that's crazy. And it is in those contexts. But if we talk about college campuses, um, major corporations, foundations, the arts, the media, Hollywood entertainment, it's clear that the left is in charge and is using its power to suppress the speech, not only of those on the right, but even of those on the left, you know, say the mm-hmm. left half of the spectrum who aren't sufficiently far to the left for the taste of the sort of self-appointed spokespeople on the left. Mm. This is going to be a rich hour, a very rich hour, because you've said a few things already that, that I want to interrogate as we move through. Let me start with this, um, and we'll come uh, directly to this. Uh, you heard uh, Bill uh, DeResowitz say a moment ago that the left is in charge. He offered you a litany of examples of the ways in which, as a progressive, he sees the left in charge. Uh, politically, I don't think that uh, Bill uh, DeResowitz and I are that unaligned. Politically, we are not that unaligned. But I want to interrogate and press him on this notion that the left is in charge. I'm not sure I buy it, uh, but I want him to uh, to convince me of that and disabuse me of my notions that the left is not in charge, never mind the list that he just ran. Uh, I, want to, I want to interrogate that. I also want to talk about uh, the point he just made about free speech being a tool of the powerless. Again, hard to argue with that, uh, but how effectively is that tool being used, being wielded? Because the evidence, the data that I'm looking at suggests to me that the powerless are getting ever more powerless, that the powerful are getting more powerful, that the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poor. This divide between the rich and the rest of us continues to grow. A lot to interrogate with uh, William Derezowitz in this hour talking about um, this uh, delicate balance between free speech and censorship. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580s. We celebrate the 90th birthday of Quincy Delight Jones. Hard to step on Michael Jackson, but the uh, conversation uh, must continue. 
uh, in this hour. We mentioned uh, James Ingram earlier. Quincy Jones produced some great hits with James Ingram and and uh, and uh, Patty Austin. Uh, James Ingram wrote this song for Michael Jackson, PYT, written by the late great James Ingram. So Quincy has a wonderful uh, cadre of people around him over the years he's worked with, and uh, they've made him better, and he's helped him with hits. <laughs> So I'm mad at you, Q. We love you. We celebrate your 90th birthday today, this week, on KBLA Talk 1580. Now, back to our guest in this hour, uh, William uh, Derezowicz. As we talk about this uh, delicate balance between free speech and censorship, and Bill, moments ago, said a couple of things that that, uh, got me going, and I'm glad I got the rest of this hour to let him unpack some of this. Uh, First, um, this notion, Bill, that free speech is a tool of the powerless. Obviously, playing devil's advocate here, I take your point. But how are the powerless wielding that tool? It seems to me, again, the data everywhere I look suggests that the rich are getting poorer, the poor are getting uh, the rich are getting richer, rather. The poor are getting poor. Uh, the powerful are getting more powerful. The number of billionaires is growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, and uh, the powerless are, 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 are getting less powerless by the day. And yet you argue that free speech is a tool of the powerless. If so, what are we doing with that tool? Well, I mean, the two, both things can be true. I absolutely agree with you that the rich are getting richer, the powerless are getting less powerful. Um, it doesn't mean that free speech isn't a valuable tool for them. It may mean, it does mean, I think, that the forces arrayed against uh, the poor and the powerless are so enormous and getting stronger every day that free speech, I mean, it certainly isn't by itself enough to, to uh, you know, to uh, undo uh, differences of power and wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think we'd be in an even worse shape if uh, if they were taken away. You know, if work. I mean, workers, for example. Uh, I said I'm I'm an economic progressive. We know the union movement has been getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Sure. Uh, there's been you know uh, kind of a especially since the pandemic started, kind of a move back in the other direction. Hasn't gotten very far so far. But imagine a world in which workers didn't have the right to protest their company's policies, didn't have the right to stand outside and pick it. I mean, that's the kind of tool of the powerless I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you then advanced this notion uh, with, a, with a long list of things. It's hard to, uh, ar- hard to argue, hard to push back against. But your ultimate conclusion was, once you uh, offered us that litany of, uh, of examples, your conclusion was that the left is in charge. I'm not sure I'm buying that. Uh, and if they're in charge, in charge of what? So if you can, disabuse me of my notion that that the left uh, does, in fact, wield some power. But we ain't in charge, man. Okay, so here's what I would say. Okay. Uh, as we know, I, I, I did not mean to say and didn't say that the left is in charge everywhere. Right. We live in a very polarized country. We all know that. But it's not. it's polarized, not just... Uh, not just 50-50 in terms of voting, but in terms of the way there's been a kind of sorting out, right? So that rather than contesting for power in the same arenas, which happens very rarely now, maybe only in Congress and in a few purple states, uh, the right is in power in large areas of the country, most obviously places like Florida and Texas, and the left is in charge in some areas of the country, most obviously California and a lot of the Northeast, but also institutionally. I mean, I think it's hard to argue. I spent a lot of my career in academia, and I still give a lot of talks on college campuses. I was at a college campus last week. Um, the left is running the show there um, in the arts, in entertainment. Um, 
major corporations, I think it's more complicated because I think in a lot of respects it's just kind of lip service. Mm-hmm. But certainly large foundations. And, um, you know, they, there was a very quick kind of lining up in the last few years behind the whole menu of, I'm going to put it in quotes, uh, social justice politics. Mm-hmm. And I'm putting it in quotes not because I'm against social justice without the quotes, but because social justice, as the term is used now, means a very specific set of things that you have to believe, that you have to say, that you have to sign on to. Mm-hmm. And I think anyone who works in any of those sectors understands that that's true and understands what those things are. So that's, those are a whole set of examples of um, you know, the media, uh, you know, sort of mainstream legacy media, the New York Times, NPR, very clearly, uh, places where the left has power, overwhelming power, and it is using that power to enforce at least nominal compliance with a certain very specific ideology and is, and is suppressing the ability to dissent from that ideology. Yeah. How would, how would you, uh, again, my mind is racing. I have so many things I, I want to ask you about in this hour. I'm glad we got some time here. Um, how would you frame, uh, properly frame this notion of free speech and free expression with the ban on books, uh, the fight against teaching the truth in classrooms, the nonsense of Ron DeSantis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How would you square those two things? Free speech, free expression on the one hand, and this nonsense that we're seeing on the other hand. Yeah, listen, again, I mean, the right is just as guilty, just as guilty. And I, it's even worse because I think the sort of illiberalism, the sort of move against free speech on both is re, is uh, is reinforcing itself from both sides. In other words, when the when the left uh, is against free speech, it gives permission for the right to be against free speech, mm. and vice versa, mm-hmm. and vice versa. So, absolutely, I mean, the stuff that DeSantis is doing, and he's clearly doing it because you know he's he's preparing his presidential campaign. This is what he's going to run on. This is clearly, you know. Uh, you know, deeply illiberal, deeply against the spirit of free expression, banning books, as you say, can't teach the truth about American history. But the same kind of thing has been happening on the left. Now, generally not from state government, so it's not censorship in the strictest sense of the word, but we've seen, I mean, we could go down a whole list of books that have been taken out of schools, books that have been squelched before they could get published, uh, books that have been uh, taken out of publication, like some of the Dr. Seuss books, or the, some of the language has been changed, like the Roald Dahl, you know, like the Willy Wonka books. We just learned about that. You know, offensive language has been removed. And and even and if this language isn't even offensive, it's ridiculous to think that it's offensive. But even if it is, the fact that you're doing this is a violation of free speech, uh, certainly of the spirit of free speech. Uh, and on and on and on, you know, sensitivity readers, you know, every book, especially like in young adult fiction, it has to pass through the filter of like multiple sensitivity readers, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. T- talk, talk to me then about the relationship, um, increasingly uh, the lack of relationship, it seems to me, between free speech, free expression and truth. I mentioned truth a moment ago, but I want to come more uh, uh, precisely to it because it seems to me we're living, we're living in an era 
where the truth is what each of us determines it to be. Whatever it is that we determine, that is the truth. You recalled in the Trump era the notion of alternative facts. And so what I'm, what I'm, what I'm pressing on here is what is the value of free speech? What is the value in a society, a democratic society, a society that is ex- at least an experiment in democracy, as I put it? What's the value of free speech or free expression if each of us is going to tell the truth as we see it and there's no clear understanding or acceptance of what is a what is a falsehood and what is a truth. Okay, I think what I hear you asking is in a world in which people can flood, you know, can flood our consciousness, can flood media and social media with this avalanche of misinformation, disinformation, you know, straight up lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, free speech that permits that seems to be counterproductive to the search for truth and to democracy. Mm-hmm. And I totally get that. I mean, I think there's, there's always, there'd always been people, you know, putting out misinformation, propaganda, and so forth. I think the people who framed the Bill of Rights understood that. But now technology has kind of turbocharged it to a degree that nobody could ever have imagined. Okay, but what's the best recourse for that? Is it to try to suppress speech that we deem false? Well, who's we? Who gets to do that? Who gets to decide? And can you trust them? I mean, this is really the issue for me, is that I certainly have my own conceptions of what is true and what is false. And, of course, I I think they're right because they're mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I see falsehood being spread everywhere. But... I don't, you know, I don't get to decide for everybody. Uh, So who gets to decide for everybody? Nobody gets to decide for everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can we appoint a truth committee that's going to weed out misinformation and disinformation? Well, why do they get to decide? Um, I think this is what the, this is the, the understanding that lies behind a belief in free speech, that there is no place for a neutral place for anyone to stand above the fray and say this is true and this is not true, and a further understanding that the only way to get to the truth is to let all the voices fight it out. And, that, and I understand that's incredibly frustrating, especially when some of the most malevolent voices have such a huge megaphone now. But... I, I don't see a better alternative. Yeah. Well, I, no, I, I, and I'm not sure I disagree. I'm not sure there's a better alternative either. Um, what I do want to press upon though and interrogate here is um, this notion that, um, how about I put this? I agree with you. There, there, there is the truth and there is the way to the truth. And we all have to be humble enough and, and realize that you know, the truth that we know, others may be on their way to discovering. So you can't be arrogant about the truth that you do know, although I think we're obligated to, to speak the truth that we know. There is the truth and there's the way to the truth. I take your point on that. What troubles me, though, is at the highest levels, even of governance, um, we have people uh, advancing uh, lies, uh, uh, half-truths, untruths, falsehoods about things that impact the lives that we are living, that impact the future of this experiment in democracy, that impact uh, life and death matters. Whether we're talking global warming, I could run the list, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm watching my clock. It's not going to be fair to give you 30 seconds to respond to this. What I'm teeing up here, though, is while I, again, understand the truth and the way to the truth, what I'm wrestling with is what we do in a society 
that believes in free speech, believes in free expression, when our so-called leaders start lying to us uh, to the 10th power. That's what I want to uh, interrogate when we come forward as we continue our conversation with uh, William Bill DeResowitz on KBLA Talk 1580 as we celebrate again the 90th birthday this week of Quincy Jones, who's written music scores and soundtracks and TV themes. This is the one he did for Ironside. Q has an enviable, <laughs> an enviable body of work. As I keep saying all day today, he's done everything with everybody at least twice. All these artists uh, have uh, been honored to work with Quincy Jones, who we are celebrating today. This week is Quincy's 90th birthday. So happy birthday, Q. Uh, we love you. We respect you. And uh, we appreciate the music that you have added to the soundtrack of our lives. Quincy Jones now celebrating his 90th birthday. We continue our conversation in this hour with William Bill Derezowitz uh, talking about this delicate balance between free speech and censorship and how that um, uh, that dialectic is getting uh, more and more uh, uh, sensitive um, these days. Uh, we were talking before news traffic and sports uh, about uh, this notion of free speech and free expression and I was saying to Bill that I understand that there is the truth and there's the way to the truth. And OK, I'm, I'm OK with, you know, accepting that some people may not be where I am. Um, what I don't like is people advancing notions of truth as they determine it to be. What I don't like are, are people advancing notions of what uh, the Trump people called alternative facts. And what I really don't like, Bill, uh, these days are people who run our country, uh, leaders uh, who are supposed to be advancing us into the future who stand up day in and day out, and they just lie. Uh, they, advance, they, they use this notion of free speech. They use this notion of free expression uh, to lie to us about things that really matter to us, to lie to us about things that really are important to the future of this uh, burgeoning democracy. That's what troubles me. I take your point. I don't know what the better alternative is, but I'm getting more and more annoyed about people lying to me to my face routinely. Listen, I agree with you for sure, and I hate the fact that the right has appropriated this banner of free speech uh, as this kind of weapon. But let me say a couple things. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted that, you know, Donald Trump was a lie machine like we've never seen before. You know, it's a cliche, but we all know it's true. Politicians always lie, at least some of the time. Uh, so it's not just on one side or the other. Uh, or leaders that we look to. I mean, I'm going to sound like a conspiracist. When I say this, I'm not. But just one example. Anthony Fauci has acknowledged that he lied to us early in the pandemic about the efficacy of masks because he didn't want people running out and buying up all the masks because he wanted the masks for the healthcare workers. And he, he's admitted this. Again, it's nothing like the same scale. The point is, um, this happens. This happens to a certain extent on both sides. This will always happen. Um, but politicians are not lying because they have the powers granted to them under the First Amendment. They can lie because they're powerful and because they have a microphone. Not to sound like a broken record, but our right to free expression, including freedom of the press, are the main thing that gives us a, a, the ability to push back against politicians' lies, to be able to say, Donald Trump is lying, you know, he's lied 10,000 times or whatever. I think it's the Washington Post who kept track. That's the, that is the main, uh, you know, bulwark that we have against what I absolutely agree with you, politicians who are out there 
lying to us all the time. What can we do? What can we do about that otherwise? I mean, ultimately, the only thing that we really can do is to try to vote them out of office, is to try to win the political struggle. And in order to win the political struggle, one of the things that we need to be able to do is to speak our own truths, to organize politically, uh, to do the things, to assemble. That's another one of the freedoms in the First Amendment is freedom of assembly. So... Um, Despite the fact that the right has absolutely been abusing this term freedom of speech, and it kills me that they're doing that, mm -hmm. there still is this real thing called freedom of speech, and we still really need it. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, uh, pivot to talk about a couple of your, your books that I've um, uh, enjoyed, and I want to weave it in this conversation, I think, in a, I hope a, a way that is uh, seamless and, uh, uh, and not disjointed. Um, first, your book, The Death of the Artist. Uh, powerful, powerful polemic. Uh, and I want to weave that in because um, I have had the honor uh, in my career to talk to more than I can count um, people I would call citizen artists. They're not just artists, but they're I, I call them citizen artists. And I wonder in a moment like this uh, where you have written a book, you know, uh, called The Death of the Artist. Uh, what the role of the citizen artist is, um, as you know, as as go the arts, oftentimes so goes the nation, whatever republic you're talking about. Uh, and so I, I wonder if you might say a word about what you see as the role of the citizen artist vis-a-vis -vis this notion of free expression in 2023 and beyond. Sure. So just to be clear, the death of the artist, my publisher's title, I think it's, you know, it's a little, <laughs> it was a little alarmist for me, but it's about the, it's about it's about what the internet has done to the economics of being an artist today mm, and how much sure. more difficult it is to make a living as an artist. And that in impacts expression, right? Because mm. if you feel that you have less financial wiggle room, you're less likely to take chances. And that to me is what a citizen artist should do. And I know that this is not everybody's conception mm -hmm. of the role of the arts in politics. I don't think the role of the, the political role of the artist is to be a mouthpiece for political parties or ideologies. And I think if we look back at the greatest political artists, I mean, there's that famous thing that Nina Simone said to Vernon Jordan when he asked her why she wasn't part of the movement. And he said, she said, motherfucker, I am the movement. I think what she was saying is um, the best thing that I can do is to speak my truth as an artist. That to me is the best thing that artists can do as citizens is to show us the things that we don't want to see uh, including, you know, I mean, Baldwin said this too. He said that the revolutionary and the artist both, both look at society from an angle. I may not be quoting his exact words. Both look at society from an angle, but they're also at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. Because the revolutionary wants the artist to serve their purposes. And the artist has their eye on the truth as they understand it, which tends, which is often a very personal truth, idiosyncratic truth, an uncomfortable truth. I mean, I'm Jewish. I come from a Jewish community. I grew up with my rabbi sort of sermonizing against Philip Roth, the great American Jewish novelist, because he told truths about our community that was uncomfortable to hear. Basically, he was saying that Jews are human beings, which means that they're flawed and means a lot of them don't do the right thing. And, you know, we, especially as then still victimized community, this wasn't that many years after the Holocaust. We didn't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. But that, to me, is what artists can do for us. Yeah. So that's uh, The Death of the Artist. Uh, the other book I want to just come to right quick, you, you've written so many uh, 
uh, brilliant pieces uh, over the years, 300 published essays and reviews, not to mention his text, former professor of English at Yale and Columbia, all around brilliant uh, public intellectual acclaimed essayist, critic, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the book uh, you penned uh, came out last year, as I recall, uh, The End of Solitude. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could, uh, in short order, uh, tell us what you think the Internet is doing to us. We, we can have debates and conversations about what the Internet is doing for us. What you really unpack in this text is what the Internet is doing to us as we uh, connect that to notions of free speech and free expression. Can you talk about that for a second? Absolutely. So The End of Solitude, uh, that book, which did come out last year, is a collection of my essays. And the title essay is something that I wrote in 2009, uh, about a year after I joined Facebook. Uh, And it, it, it came out of what I was seeing was happening to me and to my friends and to everyone I knew as a result of this new thing called social media, which is that it was taking away our ability to be alone. Um, Not to be lonely, but to be alone, to be solitary in a way that is rich and full and focused, and I think essential for building a strong self, a self that can stand against the group, stand against the herd, Whereas social media is all about aligning yourself with the group and getting the likes and avoiding the condemnation that so swiftly descends on Facebook, but especially on Twitter and other platforms, if you say something that your circle, that your group doesn't like. So to me, there is a very strong connection between what the Internet is doing to, for lack of a better word, our souls, our inner lives, Mm -hmm. ourselves, and our ability not just to have free speech as a legal matter, but to use it effectively, to be able to, I mean, you know, free speech protections are about protecting people who say unpopular things, right? That's really what it's about. And as it's it's been said that the Bill of Rights is an anti-majoritarian document, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, no one is going to try to censor you for saying, you know, America is great, Jesus is Lord, et cetera, et cetera. It's Mm -hmm. the people who, yeah, Um, but in order to even be that person who can see the things the rest of us don't want to see or can't see and to have the courage to speak them, we need those strong cells that I think the internet is, is, is weakening and weakening in all of us. No, I hear you. Um, when we, uh, when we come forward, I want to pivot ever so gently uh, and talk about uh, um, notions of replatforming, uh, specifically what you see, uh, Bill DeResowitz, as the key to canceling cancel culture. You're listening to Bill DeResowitz on KBLA Talk. Uh, Bill DeResowitz, um, give me your take. Um, again, you taught uh, English uh, at Yale and Columbia for any number of years. Give me your sense of the role. Uh, that colleges and universities, it seems this week I've had two or three conversations about um, uh, from different angles about the state of uh, uh, of our education system, specifically as it relates to colleges and universities, uh, liberal arts. I've had a number of conversations about that this week. But give me your sense of where the university and college system uh, fits in, comes in, is connected to this conversation about free speech and free expression. Well, this is a subject that makes me very sad, unfortunately because I think that higher education should be one of, should be the place where young people uh, have unfettered freedom of speech to debate 
all the issues of contemporary society, of what it means to be a human being, of the past, of everything. I mean, this is what college is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be a place where, um, you know, uh, where, where you can be fearless in considering points of view that may be uncomfortable to consider. Uh, I think the, the, the job of a college, of a college professor, is to teach students, to help students to learn how to think, how to think critically. I know that's a cliche, mm -hmm. but it means to be skeptical of anything you hear and especially of anything you already think. And instead of teaching students how to think, what I've, what I've been seeing over you know, the 40 almost years that I've been involved in one way or another, is that more and more professors see their job, colleges see their job, as teaching students what to think, teaching students what to think, and it's becoming a kind of indoctrination. And again, in what, I, what I'm saying is, quote-unquote, social justice. It's a very specific idea of what you're supposed to believe. Um, that's, you know, I, I think that's a, that fundamentally disrespects our students. Mm -hmm. it, it, it means that we're trying to make our students little versions of us rather than the best version of themselves. And, it, and, and, and in order to do our job honestly, respectfully, we need to be okay with the idea that some of our students are going to graduate thinking very differently than us, maybe even voting Republican and being conservative. I don't want that, but it's not my job to try to tell them not to. It's my job to serve them as full human beings yeah. and show them the respect to let them reach their own conclusions. Let me uh, offer this as the exit question when we come forward in a moment, uh, in our final moments with uh, William Bill Derezowitz. Um We have a Supreme Court right now that we all know is um, uh, on steroids when it comes to shrinking rights. But at our best, uh, the demos is always better when we are about the business of expanding rights. Uh, I, I wonder if there are ways in which uh, Bill DeResovitz can imagine the shrinking of rights when it comes to free speech and free expression, even as the right is wielding this notion of free speech to advance their agenda in real time. Can he imagine a space and time in which we uh, see a Supreme Court uh, that is, uh, since they're shrinking rights in every other realm of, uh, of American life, uh, might they shrink rights vis-a-vis -vis free speech and free expression? We'll get that response before we wrap this conversation with uh, William Bill DeResowitz on KBLA Talk 15. There's a few minutes left in this uh, conversation um, uh, with Bill. Bill, let me let me close with this. Um, uh, this Supreme Court, as I said a moment ago, is, is all about the business of uh, shrinking rights, not expanding rights. Can you imagine uh, a space in which we see the shrinking of rights as it relates to free speech and free expression? Unfortunately, I can't. I'm not aware of any, uh, you know, decision that's coming up, any case that's coming up that might do that. But given the track record of this court, which is not just uh, right, right wing, but extreme right, extreme even when in the context of the right, you know, they could do they could do just about anything, and it frightens me. It really frightens me because there, there, there doesn't seem to be any way to check their power. But again, I, I just I just come back to what I've been saying all along. Um, it's not going to help protect free speech from free speech rights from this Supreme Court if we also attack free speech from the left. If we invalidate the very notion of free speech as you know an instrument of power, et cetera, et cetera, as a, as a as a as a, as a fake value, 
uh, it simply it simply creates a climate of opinion where it's easier yeah. for the court, you know, to possibly do that. Yeah, I got 45 seconds left. You began this conversation um, by suggesting that it's not so much uh, on a tightrope, but that free speech and free expression are on a slippery slope. In 45 seconds, given that reality, how do you sustain your hope about this notion of free speech and free expression? Well, I'm always hopeful because because I've lived long enough to know that we can never predict what the future is going to bring. But I I think also um, uh, free expression is an incredibly valuable, uh, uh, it's something that people hold a great deal of value for, right? I mean, I think Americans in general uh, recognize uh, how vital it is to their ability to not just be citizens, but to live as they want. So um, that, to me, is the is the real bulwark against those who are trying to take free speech away. Yeah. And I think we see, at least on the left, that there's real pushback now within those institutions against the kind of cen- censorship we've been seeing. William Bill DeResowitz, award-winning essayist, critic, author, frequent speaker, uh, and just all-around noted public uh, intellectual with over 300 published essays and reviews, thought leader in the humanities, and an expert, as you have uh, been convinced of in this hour, on culture and society. What a great delight, Bill, to have had you on the program. All the best to you, sir. We'll do it again somewhere down the road, I promise. Thank you. Great to be on. Thank you for your time. That's our program for today. Time to make room now for the KBLA Midday Money Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson, followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Najah Roberts. Old money, new money. Either way, we got you covered here on KBLA Talk 1580. Do not forget to tune in today to Ariva Martin in real time. Ariva will unpack um, that KCRW piece that we talked about earlier in our program. Uh, And, uh, of course, at 435 today on her program, she will continue her conversation with our Justice correspondent Dion Raymond, who's in the courthouse right now as the case of USA versus MRT continues. I'm back here tomorrow. No, I'm not. I lied. Tomorrow's the best of Tabby Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Until then, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith. Happy birthday, Q. We love you.